Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Mark 16, 1 through 8, God's inspired word from the New Testament. Give your attention to the reading of it. God's word, Mark 16. When the Sabbath had passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment it seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So some people have it. And others don't. It's kind of like being tall. You are or you're not. And this is punctuality. Yes, some people are on time, and others never quite are. Now, sure, what it means to be on time varies from culture to culture, but for us, punctuality is more so of a positive. It does show respect for the other person and the occasion. It's polite and good order. While being late can be rude, disruptive, and costly. If your date is 30 minutes late, you are not a happy camper. If you're late to the airport and miss your flight, this could put you out the cost of your ticket and mess up the day of the person who is going to pick you up on the other side. Generally so, then, being tardy is not good. And yet, every once in a while, showing up late works out wonderfully. It was an 8 a.m. sharp start to do a job that you dreaded terribly. But traffic put you 15 minutes late, you walk in, and the job's done. By an unintentional tardiness, you escape that hated chore. That's pretty awesome. Well, the women disciples were very much trying to be on time. They got up at the crack of dawn to be early, but when they got to the tomb, they were late. But their tardiness ended up being the best thing ever. So with the death and burial of our Savior, we saw how they are necessary parts of our Lord's suffering for our redemption. The goodness of our, of our Lord's burial, though, doesn't make it a happy time. With Jesus' body in the grave, the day turned into a sad Sabbath. In part, it is sad because we should lament all of our sins that sent Jesus to his agonizing death. And yet, for the other part, the Sabbath was a downer for the disciples due to their weak faith. 
The disciples lamented Jesus as being dead and gone. Their faith misplaced the promise of his resurrection, and so they fell, or their hope, fell into the mud of despair. They couldn't climb out of the muck of their unbelieving grief, which we also see with the ladies. It is now the first day of the week as the Sabbath has passed, which is a detail that shows us that Mark is counting. In 1542, it was the day before the Sabbath, one, then the Sabbath came, two, and now it is the day after the Sabbath, three. It's the third day since Jesus was buried. And very early on this Sunday morning, the three women are up before the rooster, the same three ladies who witnessed the crucifixion and noted the burial of Jesus in order to mark his tomb, are up and at him. These, again, are the two Marys and Salome. And Mark very much marks the clock. It's after the Sabbath, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, and the sun is just coming up. They come to the tomb at sunrise, which has echoes with the Old Testament. For in the Old Testament, the dawn and first light has a sense of new beginning, joy, and refreshment. The dew of the sunrise invoked the life-giving power of God. Indeed, there's a possible echo here to 2 Samuel 23, where the Davidic kingship was likened to the sunrise blessing. His reign dawned on the people with life and the favor of God. Well, on this cloudless morning, the women are visiting the tomb of the true Davidic king. Additionally, this first day after the Sabbath held a special day in the Old Testament holy calendar. For Passover fell on the 14th of the first month, which is when Jesus died on a Friday. The next day, on the 15th, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread that began with the festive Sabbath, which happened to overlap with the weekly Sabbath on this particular occasion. Finally, the 16th, the law designated as the Day of First Fruits. This was when a special offering was given as a seal and down payment of the full harvest. This Day of First Fruits holds a distinction within the Old Testament law, and with the law set forth, Christ came to fulfill. This Sunday sunrise holds great expectations, though the women were not aware of them. Indeed, they visit the tomb not in hope, but as part of the normal grieving ritual, for they've purchased some spices and ointments, and they're coming to anoint the corpse of Jesus. This was just part of the normal status quo for respectful burial. For part of your duty as a family member was to ensure an honorable burial, which included washing the body, wiping it down with perfumes, wrapping it in linen, adding more oils, and then laying it in the family tomb. And this didn't even include hiring all the mourners and holding a funeral. Well, due to the crucifixion and the Sabbath, the the, uh, Mother Mary and the other two ladies were were not able to do this. Joseph did it for them, but he did it only quickly as he was rushed for time. Besides, when it comes to preparing a body for burial, 
men aren't careful enough. It takes a woman's touch, a mother's eye. Though if you think about it, this would have not been a pleasant job. The dead body has been lying there for a bit now and would probably be quite ripe. Performing, per, pouring perfume on a decomposing corpse seems like a waste of time and money. Grieving, though, is not a logical process. Yet there is another reason the lady's desire to anoint is pointless. That is because Jesus has already been anointed for burial. If you remember back to the opening of chapter 14, when Jesus was dining in Bethany, a woman came in and poured oil all over him for his burial. And for her impressive devotion, Jesus granted her an enduring memorial with the gospel as it is preached worldwide. These lady disciples then, or the lady disciples were likely there that night. They might have cooked the dinner. But they have either, in their sadness, forgotten her, who should not be forgotten, or they fail to understand that Jesus has already been sufficiently anointed for his internment. Nevertheless, they're on their way when they do remember something. The stone, a massive stone, seals the grave of Jesus. This is a classic case of you have everything in the car you need, You're 20 minutes down the road, and all of a sudden it dawns on you, I forgot the keys. You got everything on your list, but you can't get into the building where you're going. Now, now the women, now women can be plenty strong, but there are some jobs where you just need a man. Opening the pickle jar and rolling a big stone away from the tomb. Thus, this is a big problem. What are they going to do? Well, they turn the corner and look, and they see the stone rolled away. The grave is open. This is one problem solved, only to create another. What is it doing open? For grave robbing, grave robbing was not an uncommon crime back in the days. Did someone vandalize the tomb of Jesus? Is his body okay? Is it even there? Troublesome worries speed the women on, and they rush inside the tomb. And what they see was not what they were expecting. There's an unidentified person inside. First, they notice it's a young man, a teenager in the prime of his youth. What's a pretty boy doing in a grave? And how did he move the stone? The rock would require several grown men, not some young whippersnapper. Next, he's sitting on the right side. Now, Mark doesn't clarify the right side of what, presumably where the body was laid. Yet the right hand in Mark has been a theme as a position of honor. For Jesus predicted that the Son of Man would sit on the right hand to fulfill Psalm 110. James and John asked to sit at Jesus' right hand. Finally, the young man is wearing a white robe. Now, such a robe is the expensive and distinguished dress of nobility. And white, this color, matches the colors or clothes of Jesus during the transfiguration when he shone bright white. Also, a white robe is the classic uniform of heaven. 
when they finally, what, what they see then finally registers that this is an angel. The marvel, women marvel then in fear and wonder. Of course, a massive rock is no problem for an angel. The impossible stone magnifies the splendor of this angel. Additionally, in scripture, when an angel is described, it's done so to showcase God. Angels reveal the glory of God in whose presence they serve. That is, the appearance of the angel discloses truth about God. So his white robe requires or recalls Jesus' white mantle on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he sits at the right hand to proclaim Christ as king at the right hand. Jesus hasn't ascended just yet, but that right-hand chair already belongs to him. This angel then proclaims by his very appearance that Jesus has entered his glory. The humiliation of Christ is finished and his exaltation is a present reality. Before a word is even said, this angel is preaching the glory of Jesus Christ. Though in the Bible, visuals are always paired with the word. The word makes the sign authoritative. So the angel does the very, a very angelic thing. He tells the women not to be afraid. He calms the disquietude of these three. Yet this encouragement not to fear is also a signal of good news. If the angel's job is judgment, then they don't say, don't be afraid. Here, the angel then is to herald the gospel. And sure enough, the best news slips from his mouth. Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one. In fact, the angel basically gives Jesus a new title, Jesus, the crucified Nazarene. Nazareth, that ho-hum village with no Old Testament heritage, now becomes a jewel atop a crown. And crucifixion, that most abject curse and shame, the epitome of defeat and loss, now adorns Jesus as a diadem. What was previously insignificant and disgusting has been transformed into a garland of splendor and awe. Crucifixion is like socks and sandals. No one can make it look good. But Jesus did. Jesus is crowned the crucified Nazarene. Of course, the angel states this first as kind of an obvious remark. The women are seeking the crucified Nazarene. Though this line could also be heard as a question, are you fine ladies looking for Jesus? Thus, without delay, the angel answers his own question. He has been raised. Raised he is, resurrected up from the grave, no longer dead, but alive. A better word has never been spoken, and none better will ever be spoken until that seventh trumpet. And just ponder for a moment the infinite sweetness of this announcement. Jesus was raised from the dead. Consider what it means. First, death is the curse for sin. 
And ever since Adam's sin, death entered the world and has reigned. Death was that tyrant that never missed a target. All human life has fallen prey to death. Sure, Enoch and Elijah are the only exceptions, but they were taken up to heaven and didn't really die. No one has died and was raised to live forevermore. This means death has been dealt a mortal wound. And the only way to kill death is to deal with sin. He is risen spells that sin has been conquered. The crucified Nazarene beat sin by his blood. He made right all the wrong of sin. Therefore, secondly, he is risen publishes the vindication of Christ. For the world condemned Jesus as the worst sinner. The high court of Israel judged him to be a profane blasphemer. Both the world and the covenant community rendered its verdict on Jesus as a vile felon who did not deserve to live. But if the world and the church have made a perverse judgment, how is it fixed? Well, the judgments of lower courts can only be reversed by higher courts. And higher than earth is heaven. Thus, the resurrection is heaven's vindication of Jesus Christ as the righteous one. The resurrection paints in light the surpassing righteousness of Christ. For this is the one thing immune to death, obedience, particularly active obedience. So being righteous, death could not hold our Lord. He is risen. This one little word in Greek speaks volumes, the best news for our salvation. The crucified Nazarene is the righteous Christ who beat sin with his blood and conquered mortality to bring forth immortality by his active obedience. And this angel preaches this profound truth as a fact of history. He is here, he is not here. See where they laid him? The tomb is empty. The earthly body of Jesus was transformed into a heavenly body. Jesus' resurrection, then, is not some spiritual truth with no earthly reality behind it. Rather, his resurrection is a stubborn fact. Our emotions or opinions does not change its factuality. It's objective truth that demands us to pay attention. Indeed, the truth of Christ's resurrection isn't a disinterested fact that's irrelevant for our lives. Rather, it's a fact with horsepower. Christ's resurrection has everlasting torque. For what day is it? Jesus was raised on the day of first fruits. This was when the first harvest that the first harvest came in that sealed and guaranteed the full harvest. As first fruits, Jesus' resurrection makes him the firstborn of the dead, the first of many more a guarantee of our own resurrections. He is risen then, changes your life for eternity. His resurrection is proof that Christ's blood washed away all your sins. 
It's a guarantee that by his righteousness, you are justified and given entitlement to heaven. The empty tomb is your assurance that you too will be raised up with glorified bodies like your Savior. And of course, his resurrection trumpets loudly that Christ, or Jesus, is both Lord and Christ. The crucified Nazarene has been glorified, and so we owe to him all our faith, obedience, and worship. An angel, in so few words, have never said so much. And he has a few more things to say. After informing the women about the resurrection, next he commissions them. He hands them a task to accomplish. Go tell the disciples and Peter, The ladies have seen with their eyes the bare grave, and they've heard with their ears the angel's announcement, and now they must pass it on. Now, this is a simple enough task. In fact, you would expect them to do this naturally without being told. And yet this making the ladies witnesses and reporters of the resurrection stands out for a couple reasons. To begin with, there was a stereotype held by some in the first century that women were not reliable witnesses. Some operated by the motto, do not believe women. They're too emotional and prone to fits of fanty. Now, this is an ugly prejudice and one not supported by God's word, but this cultural bias colored the women witnesses as foolish and weak. Who's going to believe three grieving ladies? The glory of the resurrection testified to by the women then, this is the folly of God that is wiser than the world's wisdom. Next, this triad of witnesses report to Peter and the disciples, all of whom deserted Jesus. They abandoned him, failed in loyalty, and turned coward and put themselves first before our Lord. They washed out. Why bother with them anymore? Thus, for the word to go to the disciples means it's a message of restoration. These women carry a message of forgiveness, a word of comfort, and reconciliation. Yes, the disciples fell away for a time, but Christ is bringing them home to himself. He's picking up those who had fallen down. The gem of Christ's resurrection is held within the golden setting of grace and mercy. It's carried within the arms of Christ's imperishable love. When you hear of Christ's resurrection, you also hear of your own forgiveness. For we too stumble in weak faith, but the resurrected grace and comfort brings you back to the smiling face of Christ. Finally, though, the angel gives the women a manuscript on what to say. Tell the disciples that Jesus is going before them into Galilee. There you will see him. Now, this was a promise that Jesus spoke back in chapter 14, verse 28. There he said that the shepherd would be struck and all the sheep scattered, And after he was raised, he would go before them into Galilee. Thus, Jesus continues 
to fulfill his words and promises. But this also clarifies that the resurrection will be visual. The apostles, too, will see and become witnesses to the resurrection. They will see the resurrected glory and the body of the crucified Nazarene. And Galilee, being the chosen location, is also significant. This reference to Galilee takes us back to chapter 1. This was where Jesus began his earthly ministry. So to go back to Galilee hints at a new heavenly ministry of Jesus. Moreover, in Galilee was where Jesus first called his disciples. It was where their discipleship began, and now it's where new discipleship will be renewed and given. Galilee speaks of a renewed ministry and discipleship. This is where the apostolic ministry for the new covenant church will commence. This is all marvelous and exciting. And yet what happens next is disturbing. After listening to the angel, the women's fear has not abated, but it's amplified. They are overcome by trembling and panic, and they sprint from the tomb. They run off. They scatter like little girls who just saw a ghost. And their fear is so intense that they don't say anything to anyone. The women do not speak to the disciples or anyone else. In short, they blatantly disobey the angel. Fear overcomes their faith and obedience. This is pretty bad. Now, we know from the other Gospels that the ladies best their cowardice and end up relaying the angelic gospel. And yet, why does Mark only record this spell of their panic and failure? Well, so far, the women have been an example over against the male disciples. The women stayed at the cross while the guys fled. The brave love of the women tested better than the men, but now they too stumble. They didn't desert Jesus in his death, but they do in his resurrection. Jesus did say all the sheep would be scattered. Therefore, even though the ladies lasted longer, they also failed. At the end of the day, all fall short. No one has reason to boast. The all-grace gospel is needed by the women just as much as by the men. And as you'll remember, throughout Mark's gospel, he's been pretty hard on the disciples. He continually continued to show their folly, their weak faith, their slowness, and their pride. And now he does it again by reporting the disobedient fear of the women. And yet, Mark exposed the disciples' frailty and failure, not to be mean, but to magnify the all-effective work of Christ. What was an impossibility for us humans lifts high the possibility of God in Christ to save us to the uttermost. Just as these women need Christ completely, so do we. The women could only boast in Christ, and so it is for us. The women, too, will be reconciled to Jesus in Galilee, just like the other disciples. 
Therefore, Jesus reconciling himself to the disciples in Galilee is a call for us to be disciples. The new covenant church began with the resurrected Christ meeting his own in Galilee. And from Galilee, he sent them out as disciples. So also he calls us and reconciles us to himself to be his followers. The resurrection summons us to believe in Christ. His grace strengthens us to walk in new obedience. And the message of the resurrection makes us heralds of the good news. Namely, that the crucified Nazarene sits at the right hand as the righteous resurrected one for our justification. And yet in our new identity, as being disciples of Christ, we are reminded that it's still all of Christ. As the women stumbled, so do we. Our whole salvation is completely of Christ. Even as we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, so it's the resurrected Christ who works in us by his all-powerful grace so that none of us can boast, save in Jesus. Therefore, praise the Lord for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and let us sing and serve the crucified Nazarene now and forevermore until our faith presently becomes sight in glory, and all to his honor. Amen. Let us pray.